Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie, or just a fun place to talk movies if you don't care about Dune. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Jason. Yes, that's what I want for this relationship, is hatred and awkwardness. And by the founder and CEO of Warhorn, Brian Mosley. I don't want to have to read the script of every single movie in order to enjoy it. On this episode, we discuss the epic sword and sorcery movie that launched Gurney Halleck himself, Sir Patrick Stewart's career, 1981's Excalibur. We discuss the power of a majestic score, the dangers of directors casting their own children in their movies, and recite the charm of making. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Be cool like Seth410 and leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. And now, without further ado, Excalibur. If there's one thing I've learned from podcasting for almost one year with Jason Goldman, it's that his main goal is always conflict. Yes, my main goal is conflict. <laughs> <laughs> You're literally like, I don't care if you agree with me or not. And as a matter of fact, I'd prefer if you don't. Yeah, I just want it. <laughs> I just want it spicy. Yeah. Now, Brian, you know me. Like, I just always get along with everybody. I don't have strong opinions. Yeah, we were already covering how you how you bait and switch people into doing the thing that you wanted. Them That's to right. Do. Your sly manipulation. Yeah. Name five instances. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have enough time. To like go through all the instances. I think yeah. I've, it's been done to me like three times today. Well, even on DudePod, I was like, I was like, hey, Jason, would you like to like be a guest on our podcast? Right. And, you know, like maybe actually just be like a host and it'll be yeah. cool. We'll do it. I was like, uh, yeah, I could do one episode. <laughs> Season three, episode 16 later. Yeah, exactly. We're coming up on our one year, by the way. I know. We got to we got to we got to do something special for that. Yeah, that'll be something exciting. I am. I am quite sure. Yeah. Well. Brian Mosley, founder of Warhorn, welcome to DunePod. Uh, thank you. <laughs> that's like a that's a, a credit that no one's gonna understand. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you explain what is Warhorn and why did you create it? Uh, well, I got really into tournament Dungeons and Dragons back in like 2001. Uh, yep. And you'll remember I dragged you and many of our friends into it as well, and we would go all over like the Bay Area and sometimes the country to and tournaments. Sometimes the world. Sometimes the world. And uh, so I started running my own tournaments and I realized how hard it was to organize all of the human beings and make them go to the right place and do the right things. So I built some software, a website to Mm -hmm. organize it all, put it all online. And 20 years later, it's still running and there's, you know, a couple hundred thousand users and it's crazy. Sort of a big deal in this very tiny little segment of the tabletop role playing game hobby space. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And Jason, just so you know, like, there was this campaign. It was called Living Greyhawk. It was done by Wizards of the Coast, which is the company that makes D&D. And they had adventures that could literally only be run, adventures in the campaign world, this fantasy world of Greyhawk, that could only be run within certain maps on the real world. So for instance, a bunch of adventures could only be run in California. Other adventures could only be run in Illinois. So if you wanted to go play a certain adventure, you'd have to go fly to that location, 
and find a DM that was willing to run it for you. Oh, crazy. Or Australia, Brian. I remember you went out to Aussie for, for some yeah. sessions, which is crazy. That's right. That's the kind of uh, commitment we were talking about. That's a big commitment. That's a big commitment. <laughs> yeah. I'm also unfamiliar with the tournament format of D&D. Like, oh. is it like you like you play down to a winner? Like, is it like, is it competitive in the tournament sense? Or is it just like a gathering of D&D? So in ye olden days, back in the 70s, uh, when the original, you know, AD&D, or before even AD&D, when the original D&D folks were um, gathering together, they actually did kind of classical tournament style gaming where there was uh, points scored. And I think like different tables were playing the same adventure and trying to get through it faster with fewer deaths or whatever. Mm. Um, but by the time Matt and I got involved in it, it was just it was more this like living campaign. You make a character, you bring it to, to game after game. And they level and get XP and magic items and stuff. But you had to have like accounting. Yes. You had, you had to have accounting, Living like accounting. your character sheet. Yeah. When you would get a magic item, you had to write it down on your sheet and your DM had to sign it off. Um, right. So, so you, you can just be like, I have this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Even exactly. cooler than that, they would give you a little certificate and they'd sign it to prove Hell that you yeah, had yeah, a, yeah. got it. And then you had to like staple it to your character sheet or whatever. So it wound up being like a whole binder full of paperwork they had to bring to every D&D game. And your trapper see, keeper. I, we have somehow stumbled onto a legitimate use case of the blockchain. <laughs> we finally found it. It is, it is a auditable source of D&D magic items. Nice. Let the word go out. We figured right. out what it's actually for. Luckily, tabletop gaming as an industry has a, a large enough TAM and there's enough money floating around that we can leverage blockchain to solve this problem. Right. Because yeah. someone, you know, someone will spend the money on it. Absolutely. Great. So this episode is being released as an NFT. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and we're going to retire off the proceeds. It's been Sweet. a really productive seven minutes. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, with that context, now we know why Brian Mosley is here tonight on Dune Pod to talk Excalibur. So, Brian, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. You threatened on an earlier episode to bring your old DM on. And well, now you've made good on that. That's right. Yeah. So this episode... You know, my PT, uh, when I was getting physical therapy on my shoulder today from my podcast-related injury, oh asked me today, what is the connection from Excalibur to Dune? And I was like, dude, I got, I got nothing. Oh, there's a nothing. direct connection, though. Oh, except for Patrick Stewart. There's two uh -huh. direct connections. Okay. The costume designer also designed the still suits in David Lynch. Bob, Bob Ringwood. That's, that's right. That's right. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I forgot. We picked this one only because Corey went apeshit about it uh, when we referenced it, I yeah. think, relative to Ladyhawk or something. This is right. This is also a gift to longtime Dude Pond listener Corey. That's right. So very glad that we were able to, to pull this together. So tonight's episode, bottom of the hour, we will be talking about Excalibur. Next week on Dune Pod, Steph and Sophie from Edit Audio, the podcast production house up in Canada, are going to be joining us to discuss David Lynch's masterpiece of the bazaar, Blue Velvet. That's great. I'm excited. Hell yeah. Brian, yeah. you like that movie? Fuck that shit. Paps Blue Paps Ribbon. Blue Ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a quotable movie. That's a that's a that's a real quotable movie. Really excited. And and Steph and Sophie are real podcasting pros. Sophie does our transcripts, so it'll be amazing to have them join yeah. us uh, on the pod. All right. So Dune News. Would you like to know more? Dune news i don't have any do news I have, I have nothing oh, i i wait there was something there was something no i know what it is timothy chalamet posted on instagram that he was uh let me get the caption right because i don't want to i don't want playing with myself all yeah. day i've been playing with myself all day and it's a photo of 
him a series of photos yeah looking at his action figure from dune watching netflix uh in his house so there you go he's got the action figure however as we called out in our dms the lack of cable management was shocking and upsetting Yeah, Timothy Chalamet needs a, needs a better AV guy because he's just yes. got a bunch of shit strewn out all over the place. Won't someone please help Timothy? Yeah, this suggests to me that he doesn't have a long-term partner in his life because they would not stand for such a thing, most likely. Brian, you recently moved. Do you have, uh, is your AV set up clean? Do you have uh, you know, good cable management in place? You have good cable routing? Well, um, in, in all of my apartments in New York, I have in-wall cabling. So basically, yes. I don't have to see cables at all. There's like a bunch of hardware in a closet back there and then TVs on the wall. As it was meant to be. Nary a cable. Yeah, <laughs> okay. That's great. You're well one done. up on Timothy Chalamet. That's right. <laughs> all right, Brian, what, if anything, is your history with Dune? Uh, my history with Dune. Uh, I know I read the first three books uh, nice. when I was when I was a wee lad. Mm. Uh, I want to say The Hobbit was my first at like five, and then I got into Dune somewhere probably between five and ten. Oh, like a, as a small, five and ten. A small child. Yeah, yes, I was an early reader. My fantasy predilection was was I guess was there from the beginning. But um, where did you come upon Dune? Was it like your your librarian or like what was the? I don't remember. I mean, I can kind of picture the like the the dog eared uh, paperback, you mm. know, that's like the size of uh, a really big thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't I can't I can't remember where or when it was. I just I know it was in that time frame and it was well before the um the Lynch's Dune movie, which I you know saw promptly. And um mm-hmm. I feel like I tried picking up um the second trilogy and yeah. I don't know that I made it very far. It's not great. Yeah. <laughs> it's and I've I've reread great. the first three two or three times uh over nice. the years, but n- nothing yeah. recent. So I remember when I met you at Critical Path in 1999 and your handle was Ix. Yeah. And at the time I was reading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and it got to the part where it explained that Zephod Babelbrooks had a nickname of Ix. And I was like, aha, I found it. That's your nickname. And you're like, nope, try again. So was it, was it the Ixians? Was it Dune? Uh, that's not where it originally came from. It, originally I was like, what is a, a two character email handle that I can use that would sound cool and mm. it, it yeah. should have an, it should have an X for maximum cool sound. And Damn. so then you just got to pick a vowel that goes in front of it. And I picked I, right. And then a little bit later I was like, Oh, right. That's a, like a Dune thing. Right. So that makes it cooler. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jason's running around as double density. Like, yeah, double rough. density. Yeah. That was, it was rough. I still have, <laughs> I still have issues with that. Still have scars. All right. Well, listen, shall we get into this? Let's get into this movie. Let's get into this masterpiece of cinema. I guess yeah. we have to do it at some point. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to I don't want to put it off. All right, here we go. Excalibur is the epic tale of love, betrayal, and redemption. In the Dark Ages, England was divided and without a king. Mm. Arthur, a lowly squire, learns his true heritage as the rightful king when he does what no one else could, drawing the sword Excalibur from the stone where it has lain trapped for a generation. Under the guidance of Merlin the Magician, Arthur will forge a nation, calling knights to join his round table at Camelot. But when the bravest and most noble of them all, Lancelot, betrays Arthur by laying with his queen, the irresistible Guinevere, the land is shattered once again. Will Arthur's knights complete their quest, find the Holy Grail, and restore Arthur and the land? 
Will Arthur redeem Guinevere and Lancelot, defeat an insurmountable evil, and live up to his destiny to once again wield Excalibur? Bum, 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 you know. bum, 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 Yes. <laughs> yeah. Bum, okay. Bum. Why did you? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't done. Uh, do you want to tell us uh, about your history with this movie and why it means so much to you? Well, it's interesting. So it's interesting. Just in the midst of writing uh, the synopsis today, and I've I've seen this movie probably thirty times at least. I watched Jesus it Christ. from the time I was like ten or eleven. Like this was, I just watched it all the time. It was absolutely to me amazing and magical. It was really long. It was super epic and uh, very complicated. A lot of sex and violence that definitely you know kind of stopped me in my tracks as a fundamentalist Christian trying to figure out what was going on. So there was a lot of that. But if you take a step back from that, Arthur, Merlin, Camelot, Lancelot, like these are bangers from all of <laughs> Western civilization. Bangers. These are like some of the biggest myths that we have in history, right? Yeah, they're very important myths in the Western canon. So yes. like to me, the Holy Grail, like there were so many things here. Excalibur, there's just so mm-hmm. many things that, that, that so many people have familiarity with so to me that it's the epic nature of the story that really is the starting point it was like 25 percent of the fiend folio was like all in one movie (laughs) i was surprised i hadn't seen this movie before watching it for dune pod because i'm a fantasy fan uh i i I think i think my fantasy credentials are fairly decent and you know we covered lady hawk on this podcast obviously and i've read a lot of fantasy and i know some about the arthurian myths it's not a subject of great strength for me but um you know i've got some passive familiarity but i'd never seen this movie and i'd seen scenes of it i realized but i've definitely never seen the whole thing uh, and I think it's because like it was just a little too sexy and violent um, mm-hmm. to either you know be in our house or to be on like Saturday afternoon television on you know local right. St. Louis television. There wasn't an edit. There wasn't a TV edit for for Excalibur. I mean, I, I don't know if there was or wasn't, but it didn't make it to Missouri. I know that, and so I I had never seen this one. Uh, you see what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was surprised, uh, and it, you know, having watched Zardoz previously for this, yeah, pod, you can definitely sort of see that this is this guy's this guy's deal. John Borman really had. He kind of is like sort of the B movie like Yodorowsky, like he's got like mm. this very sort of hallucinatory like kind of trippy like lots of zoom uh style but like you know without some of the without some of the psychological kind of underpinnings that Yodo seems to be into he also likes to shoot like in the field next to his house and he likes yes. to have little <laughs> little dancing naked kids also and fam- members of his family like yeah. in sexual roles his That's daughter true notably um yeah work with what you're given he i'm not exactly sure what john borman's like sexual like agenda is uh it's not it's not what i would call sexy there's something like violent and weird in his sexual psychology it's uh uh, what's his name from drive uh nicholas yeah right he's a fetish filmmaker yeah, maybe there's a a bit of that, right? The the gauntlet, the the metal gauntlet. There's definitely some fucking armor 
fucking in this in this <laughs> in this movie. Like the dude wanted to fuck some armor. I think that much is clear. All right, well, <laughs> let's get into it. We'll take your charges one at a time. Yeah, uh, as we yeah. make our way. I'm just I'm just sort of previewing some of the indictment. This is not oh, yeah. the full list of charges. Well, I I do want to just say, however, they're in a in however, a but. In a decade that was well known for absolute schlock, uh-huh. really, really shitty fantasy movies, like movies that are kind of a joke, uh-huh. this is actually like to me. This is this is definitely a more serious version than what you get in Lady Hawk. I think this works better than than Lady Hawk as a film. And I would say versus that's crazy. like that's versus just, like a, th- that's just crazy talk. <laughs> okay, all right, that's all offensive. Right. All right. All right, well, we'll we'll keep working on. It. There's um, there's no there's no level at which this movie works better than Lady Hawk, <laughs> including soundtrack. In which no, I'm going to offer that the armor is way better. The armor's pretty dope. Armor's it's, definitely it's, better. It's completely inappropriate for the actual Arthurian period in you know yeah. four five hundred uh, A.D. Yeah. But if you take the um like the director's intent, which was you know to honor the you know Lamorta Arthur from the High Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And you just you just decide to go with it. The armor's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, and specifically, uh, Borman talked about he wanted to interrogate both the idea of the transition from the previous, uh, you know, druids and uh, you know, yeah. multitude of gods over to Christianity and what that yeah, impact that was. part that is the most interesting thematic level of this movie is yep. the like is is the pagan Christian stuff. There's a lot of potential there, and he shits the bed on it. Like, read the script and then watch the movie. The script is so much more compelling along that particular line oh interesting all right I, well, i've you, not read the script when, when we get there you can give us some more give, yeah, some give more us some flavor i want to talk about that all right so I, I i do want to say just from the beginning the title card uh laying out great font great great font. Font. <laughs> just from the jump catcher what's that font we yeah. need uh we need <laughs> our font monkey <laughs> give us that font that it's a so, real bottom heavy font i like it a lot so that font was amazing but then the second piece is the score i just wrote that in all caps and I have listened to the score a thousand times, so it's all just like completely ingrained into me. But I'd actually never really researched it and, and looked at what it was. And I saw that it, Trevor Jones was the composer. So we talked about how Kubrick used uh, Blue Danube and other temp track stuff and decided not to change that in the, the final decision on 2001. Here, Borman did the same thing. He had gone to see Wagner's Ring Cycle and Wagner had also specifically done Parsifal, so he wanted right. to take that. And in my opinion, the music in this film, whether it is Wagner's components or Carmina Burana, is like some of the greatest cinematic score in history. That's just that's just a really grand claim, dude. I mean, like <laughs> John Williams exists and like and, and like has scored like ten movies that are more He's iconic great. than this. And like before we even get to like Zimmer or anyone else, like this is, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad it worked for you. The cool thing about this music is that it, you know, it began its life as music performed for human beings, not in a movie theater or set to you know moving pictures. And right. it, was, it was taken and used here for specific purpose, but it stands on its own. And it is, you know, fantastic and amazing and moving uh, music in its own right. And so that was actually part of, what I liked the most about the movie and yeah. elevated it a little bit for me. Um, even though what I was seeing on screen or hearing from, you know, in dialogue or whatever was, was a little choppy. <laughs> All right. I'm going to take that as a win on the music. 
All right, yeah. Well, let you'll be the designing vote on all this. Uh, I will say, like, I have a soft spot for Carmina Burana in particular. Yeah. Uh, when I was a high school debater during one of the cooler times in my life, um, <laughs> I would go to the high school debate tournaments in the mid '90s. I would wear my my trench coat, my like London Fog trench coat, and uh, stand outside like prepping for my my rounds and listening to my disc man. Um, with one of two CDs usually. The first would be like a Simon and Garfunkel greatest hits, and the other was Carmina Burana. So I, 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 you know, I go back with Carmina Burana. You really had it going on. You had it figured I, out. Oh yeah, man, like... I was just like a real chick magnet back then. <laughs> <laughs> so the opening shot of the film, we have just this incredible silhouette of the knights, and so so just all of the riding the horses. The combat that is happening, like it is aggressive, the reality and the physicality of the combat from this opening shot. And mm-hmm. I was definitely into that. Yeah. So the script, I'm going to go back to the script a bunch. Cool. It's it's so inspiring to read the script because uh, it says things like two crazed eyes reflect the fire. The eyes belong to a man without age at once ancient and boyish female and male. Like you can't, I don't know, maybe you can yeah. shoot that. Maybe that translates in cinema in some way, but it just yeah. runs so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, out of the sounds of ancient battle grows music, heroic and barbaric, shot through with melancholy. Right? I mean, you know, he tried. Wow. He, he like he wow. gave it the old college try, but uh-huh. he's he 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 and his his writing partner uh, delivered yeah. um, much better on paper, I think, than they did on, <laughs> on film. Fair enough. So we have uh, so we have the introduction of Uther Pendragon, um, who has been hand selected by Merlin. The magician who famously Merlin lives backwards through time. He has the ability to see kind of, you know, because he's experienced what's going to happen later. Um, So he's bringing Uther and has promised him Excalibur, but only to heal, not to hack. Um, And so he is he wants Uther to cut a deal with Cornwall, um, which they do. And Cornwall then invites them back. This is the beginning of mending the, the, the land together. And Cornwall's like, I know what will help celebrate. We'll have my daughter do just a quick dance for us. Yeah. <laughs> Questionable. <laughs> Highly questionable. His actual daughter, too. Like, yes. like Borman's actual daughter. They Katrina had do, Borman. Had do the sexy dance. Like, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. That's questionable. I did like her little spinny dress, though. I thought that was one of the better costumes in the movie. It was yeah. her like her Fisher net dress? Also, it looks like she could like swing it out and catch some trout. I wanna I wanna give a huge shout out to the band in this scene. Like they yeah. rocked so hard. Uh, uh, there was like this crazy lute solo that shredded. Yeah. It was it was not your everyday middle ages uh, uh no. music it was it was um... they were melting faces so i think this is one of the trevor jones pieces right it was it was these sort of interstitial things that he was responsible for um and i agree i thought this was i thought this was awesome so so uther loses it like he can't he's got a heavy grain and so he wants merlin to polymorph him so it is at this point that merlin agrees but says that he wants something in exchange because he yeah, knows he that stiltskins uther- him yeah, exactly. Uther is not going to work out. And so Merlin says the charm of making. Yeah, 
It's great. Should we talk about uh, Merlin? Should we talk about what's his face for a minute? Sure. Let me, well, let me just say one thing. The, the, the charm of making before we go on, I looked this up, loosely translated as serpent's breath, charm of death and life, thy omen of making, which I think is cool. And he, it was in um, Gaelic, I guess. Um, yeah. Okay. Nicole Williamson. Yes. guy, Merlin. Uh, he's an interesting one. He's What's a, his background? He, he's a he's a Shakespearean actor, British actor. He's born in Scotland, um, and he is interesting because you can watch his Hamlet, his Hamlet from '69, mm. considered to be like one of the best stagings of Hamlet in the modern era. Wow! Uh, and you can watch it on YouTube. It is not, nor it cannot. Come the good, but break my heart. I must hold my tongue. And unfortunately, the video of it is like a video of the stage production that's like zoomed in and looks kind of weird. But Sir Anthony Hopkins plays Claudius in that production, and he's fucking fire. Um, Anyway, like he's just like one of, you know, he's like of that generation of like British actors like, you know, in the class of like, you know, whatever, Richard Burton, John Gilgood, and like, you know, those those folks, Albert Finney or whatever. That's like Was he in Caligula with all those dudes? He was. I think he no. was in Caligula with all <laughs> those dudes. Uh naked, maybe, no, naked no, 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 dude he was, in Orgy number three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying he's a great actor. He is a saying. great actor. He is a great actor. And he uh, gave a great performance as Merlin, is what you're saying. He's compelling in this, I guess. It's a little well, weird. He makes some choices, right? He makes some choices like like in particular, there's a line later where he gives like the reading as like a dream to some a nightmare to others, like which is just a little a little broad. I was Um, like, was there a director's note to turn the court jester up that turned that knob to the right? And like when the lightning strikes, he's like, whoa, like lightning. I actually like that. One thing I love that he does is every time he invokes power, he gets sleepy. And he gets yeah. slight, he gets slightly sleepy and slightly spacey, and then he sort of like pulls himself out of it. I actually thought that was a nice little subtle touch. Yeah. And he's he constantly when he's saying stuff, he says, "That's it, that's the thing," or whatever. Like he has these yeah. little mannerisms that are consistent through the film um, yeah. that I really enjoy. But here's the thing: um, I didn't see this movie when I was a child. Um, I, you know, I just saw it two weeks ago for the first time, and so for me, Merlin was defined by Mary Stewart's uh, Merlin trilogy. Uh, look it up from the 80s. It's it's a sort of an attempt to have kind of a more realistic, historically accurate uh, take on the Arthurian mm-hmm. um, legend. And Merlin's the main character. And so for me, Merlin was always this like grounded, political scheming, like direct line descendant from the Roman overlords uh, who was not a clown and was not a goofy um, uh, kind of tonal, wildly tonally shifting uh, guy with like a weird headpiece on. And so yeah. when I saw this whole performance and the, like the wardrobe and stuff for this guy, it just, it was a, a false note for me immediately. And, and the, the Merlin part of the story for me is the most interesting part of the whole, of the, of the yeah, whole movie. Yeah. And so it really took me out of that to see uh, how he was uh, costumed and, and how he was delivering his lines. 
but he's at the center. Like the power that he has is undeniable. Like he's the one who just, he chooses Uther. He puts him up there. He's the one who papers it over to make it happen. He's the one who establishes Arthur points Arthur in the right direction. Like he's controlling everything that's happening literally the entire time. He might be being a little goofy in his, in his delivery, but I think in terms of his ability and his influence, that's certainly there. I kind of like the skull cap. I'll defend, uh, as longtime listener, Bryce Kelly called it the Eddie Munster chrome skullcap. Um, Cause like, I think that looks kind of dope. And the only drawback being that, like, I would imagine it's a little funky under there after a oh, while. Yeah. Like, yeah. You after know, nine months in the rain. Yeah. You're going to get some, you're going to get some junk. <laughs> some you got to some... pop it off and do a little towel wipe down on it every now and again. <laughs> yeah. You're going to get the Welsh mold under there for sure. All right. So Uther, you know, has requested some assistance in getting with the grain. So Merlin does, polymorphs him so that he can go sleep with her and get her pregnant um, while Cornwall is dying. And so nine months later... Wait, wait, wait. Before we jump nine months ahead, I kind of want to point out that the the sex scene is... um, Again, with the director's own daughter. With the director's own daughter, the bearing of the breast and so forth. But also, um, Uther Uther slash Cornwall uh, doesn't doff his armor. Uh, now, somehow he gets oh, yeah. the cod piece off, which seems oh, yeah. challenging. Where's the squire? Did the squire come in like <laughs> off camera and get the cod piece off somehow? On his uh, knees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was questioning that. Okay. This is a good time to sort of, and we'll talk more about this, of course, <laughs> but like to talk about the, the costume design. Uh, There's general, no way I'm getting out of this episode alive. It's just <laughs> not happening. Like, so Bob Ringwin, who we mentioned before, did the still suits in Dune. Uh, here like really seems to enjoy adding sex characteristics to his armor. So it's possible that like, oh, yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't need exactly, you know what I'm saying about yeah. the cod piece. Um, and so like, yeah, he puts nipples on the armor, uh, later in this movie. Visionary, a visionary yeah. 20 years well, early. And like, and funny thing is, is that 20 years later, he would be the one to add nipples to the Batman suit in Batman and Robin, uh, which ended his career because that was the <laughs> only thing that that movie became known for. Of course. Well, it worked one time. Why not try it again? Exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. So Merlin takes Arthur when he is born nine months later, and he tells Uther, he says, he says you're not the one um, because he betrayed Cornwall, so no one trusts him. And he leaves with Arthur and Uther pursues him and is ambushed. And as he is being cut down, and I love this scene, as he's being cut down, you know, he says, Nobody shall have the sword! And shoves it into the stone. Nobody shall wield Excalibur but me! And I just love that, uh, you know, his reaction, Merlin's response to it from a distance, um, and that kind of epic sword in the stone you know that that we've heard so many times you realize he says in that scene when he gets attacked and ambushed he the the dialogue is literally attack ambush (laughs) that script is really good it's really i mean this scene this scene that you're holding up as like amazing literally that is an attack ambush scene features dialogue that is literally (laughs) attack ambush (laughs) okay that's a fair point you know, this is this is the time uh, where in my first viewing, I was like, who are all these people? And uh, Uther, I knew Uther because I knew I knew the name, the character of Uther from from other, yeah. um, you know, encounters with with the material. 
Um, so I could pick him out, but all the rest of the people were completely nameless to me. The second viewing, when I knew their names, I heard the names like being called. Um, mm, but yeah, but the way kind of um, I don't know the way it was acted and the way the music or the the dialogue was mixed or whatever. Like I you, the names are so weird, like Urians and Leondegrants and whatnot that you don't mm. know their actual names. They sound like bell like art, inarticulate bellows. If you watch this movie thirty times, you will definitely know the names. Well, in the second viewing, when I hear someone yell Leondegrants, then okay, yeah. I know what they're talking about. But yeah, I also yeah, had to yeah. read the script in between. No, that's totally fair. So at this point, Merlin hands off Arthur to be raised by Sir Ector and his son, Kay. And Arthur is a squire specifically to Kay. Um, and I just love that that this is, it's about honor. It's about integrity. It's about telling the truth. It's about being hardworking. Um, and Arthur is, you know, really good. He had one fucking job, which was to make sure that he had Kay's sword and he forgot uh, his sword. Yeah. Bummer for him. I mean, not a great job. I guess the sword got stolen, right? It didn't get... Well, like, he left, it, got, he left, he it, left in the, it in the tent. in the tent, and then it got stolen. So interestingly, there was... Um, I, I read some piece, and I can't remember where it was to credit it, but I read some piece that posited that the, the little boy who stole the sword was actually Merlin in disguise, who was, like, mm. again, orchestrating this uh, scenario. That's um, cool. To, 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 like, you know, call that's Arthur to the, to the sword, yeah. Which nice. I thought, like, that would be cool if that was true, yeah. Can we talk about um, the introduction of Nigel Terry as Arthur at this point? Sure. That's a weird fucking dude. That dude's face <laughs> is, is fucking weird, man. Like, he... He's More so an, when uh, he's playing, like, a 17-year-old or whatever, and he's clean-shaven. Like, once he's fully Arthur and with the beard and stuff, he looks amazing. He looks like Dave Grohl. Yeah. Good call. What? <laughs> I did not get that at all. Yeah. Huh. With the beard? Wow. For sure. Yeah, Dave definitely. Grohl looks like him, you mean. Either way. Works. He plays Prince John in uh, A Lion in Winter, which is excellent. Mm. And he's like also super fucking weird looking in that one. Hmm. He has a vibe. He has, he has a vibe. Well, and he's like hunched over to be like, oh, I'm short. I'm a teenager or whatever. And uh, it, it felt a little weird. It, it called back to me. It called back to uh, Monty Python on the Holy Grail where, you know, the dudes are like <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the serfs or whatever are bent over and or like the squires like. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the Lady of the Lake. Her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! <laughs> um, so, so he is trying to figure out how to find a sword for Kay, and he looks over and he sees Excalibur and he just draws it. He's like, uh, oh, no problem. I'm just going to pull it, this thing out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's like, here's Excalibur. Um, but he, his dad tells him to put it back, or Sir Ector tells him to put it back, which he does. And then there's the moment where people are calling. Already the word has gone out that someone has has pulled the sword. And so he's about to pull it out. Urians is introduced. This is this badass um, knight that comes up, and he demands his chance to do it. He cannot do it. And then Arthur easily pulls out the sword. The music rises, um, and everybody is uh, is kind of blown away. Mm-hmm. So uh, when when Arthur is chasing the little boy who who um, stole the sword, 
and he kind of like goes through a blacksmith's tent and he's like, yeah. oh, maybe I should just steal a sword. Steal another yeah. sword. And yeah. then some dude who's like, you know, like smoking a cigar and hammering on a cod piece or whatever looks at him funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That dude made all the armor in the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the armor. Yeah. Nice. That's yeah. the armor who, yeah. And, and like he did a great job. Especially, you know, like being on theme during the different segments of the movie where, you know, the dark armor versus the shining armor and all that stuff. So shout out to that guy for making a bunch of really cool looking armor. He got a lot of shinies, a lot of shinies in it. That's for sure. So you do have the knights are immediately split. Right. And you, so Urians is against and, and most of the knights are, are against uh, Arthur. But Leondegrantz says that he is going to support Arthur. And this is the Patrick introduction. Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Mm -hmm. So I do want to say in general, this film is like one of the very first films for Patrick Stewart, the first film for Liam Neeson, the first film for Gabriel Byrne. um, And so a a very young Helen Mirren. Mm -hmm. So it's unbelievable. All of these actors who have gone on to have these phenomenal careers all started in this film. It really does have an amazing cast. I, I will say that there's a lot of people in this movie. Incidentally, when Patrick Stewart tries to pull the sword out, him like he makes an attempt at pulling the sword out. Uh-huh. That that is some rough acting on <laughs> behalf of my guy. Yeah. <laughs> like he really like does a whole thing where he grunts and heaves, and it's tough. Could, couldn't they have given him an actual really heavy thing to pull on to make it a little I, more realistic? I was thinking about this. It's sort of the same comment I was making about what's his face nickel who's merlin being in the hamlet thing there's a whole bunch of british actors who are stage trained shakespearean actors and the type of acting that they do for the stage like just doesn't translate in close-up on film and like that that really comes through in this hamlet adaptation he did which by all accounts is amazing but looks pretty terrible Mm -hmm. uh on youtube like i think what patrick stewart is doing with the sword is like this very theatrical like type of acting that just looks really dumb when you're standing in an actual field with an actual sword and an actual stone. So I don't know, but it's tough suggestive and it, and it works when you're in the back row of the theater. Yeah, right. totally. Yeah. If or you're, 11 if you're years far old. away. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I do want to call out Patrick Stewart basically said it was difficult in that it was uncomfortable. There've been two movies in my life where the, one of the primary memories is a severe discomfort. Excalibur was one of them because we were in armor pretty much all the, all the way through the movie. And the other one was Dune where we wore these quilted rubber suits in the Mexican desert. Yeah, he disowns, he disowns the Dune performance for sure. Oh, really? Yeah, he says the Oh God's What a Monster line is like his worst line reading of his entire acting career. <laughs> we love you, Patrick. Long live Luke yeah, when he does the war pugs, he doesn't he doesn't recognize that as the best. In his defense, he he jousted pretty well. I think the the joust scene was pretty cool. It was pretty fun. Yeah, the joust scene was good. So Arthur spends the night with Merlin. He kind of runs away, and then he has to come back. And I think once he's there, and his troops are are ready for him. Arthur, I knew you wouldn't fail us. And this to me is one of the again highlight scene of the film where he says. Any man who would be a knight and follow a king, follow me. And the build of Carmina Barana as they are riding on to rescue Leondergrants. And then the cut to the siege of Cameliard 
Leander Grant's up on the ramparts fighting off invaders and the introduction of Guinevere. There, a horse rides over a guy. This is like, I guess, contractually, yeah. like every Borman movie, somebody Someone's gets run get over. trampled. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. was awesome. Could, could they have inserted, you know, a Chiron that said like Camel Yard, uh, home, home of, of Leander Grant's or whatever, right? right? Like just to, just to keep us kind of knowing what, what the hell's going on. It would have given also, an excuse to use that dope font again, too. I know, mm-hmm. right? Which they kind of, uh, they, they use very they got away from. after the beginning. Yeah. yeah. I want to I point out a couple things here. Number one, there's this like Arthur Merlin buddy comedy situation mm-hmm. that happens for a few <laughs> minutes here. Get this. Yeah. Yeah. The so, horse. Not remotely in the script. And I'm wondering, like, where did that show up? Was that in a rewrite somewhere? Or was that like, you know, on the day? They're like, we need some more levity in this moment. So let's let's insert some lines where they're, you know, ribbing each other, or having having a good time. Also, what did Merlin say to the horse? Because it looked like it thought it was hilarious. He said the same thing Bill Murray said to Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> Second point. Second point, could Merlin have like cast animate robe or mage hand or something? Like he did a lot of physical labor to help right. Ar- Arthur on the town siege tower. Like, but he's this big, awesome wizard. Um, couldn't he have done a, a cantrip or something? It's the Gandalf effect, I think, right? Yeah. Walk tall, carry a big staff and don't do much. Yeah. I guess there's just like, there's, you know, all of his level one spell slots were, had been burned on, you know, <laughs> something else earlier in the day. So all he That's- had was cloud kill left. <laughs> My fun fact about this battle is that yeah. it is uh, shot at Cahir Castle in mm. Ireland. You've been there? I have been there. That's a and? great castle. Recommend, I recommend people check it out uh, nice. if, you're in, if you're in Ireland. I mean, I just love that the location is incredible, the fact that it's all real. Um, and I love yeah. just the, the combat that's happening, pushing the, the ladders back, Arthur knocking people over, getting stabbed, guys with axes, guys with maces. Mm-hmm. But we have what, to me as a kid, really struck me, um, you know, as a very powerful scene, he takes out Urien's. He knocks him off his horse and says that he wants him to surrender. And Urien's refuses to surrender. A noble knight swear f- faith to a squire. Never. Um, mm. And then he, Arthur realizes, yeah, that's right. I cannot ask this guy to surrender. And so he hands Excalibur to him and has him make him a knight. In the name of God, St. Michael and St. George. I give you the right to bear arms and the power to meet justice. That duty I will solemnly obey as knight and king. I never saw this. Rise, King Arthur. I am your humble knight, and I swear allegiance to the courage in your veins. So strong it is, its source must be Uther Pendragon. I doubt you no more. That's just phenomenal. Um, and Urien's reaction, how he comes all the way around, to me was very powerful with the swelling of that of that music. It's kind of like a Jesus John the Baptist vibe, right? Like mm. he had to be he had to be baptized himself, I guess not by his enemy necessarily, but you know, it's in water also. Mm. It's kneeling in water, yeah. Apparently it was like 38 degrees or something on that day and everybody was freezing their freezing their miserable off. Yeah. there's a lot of scenes where it looks like people are real cold like i think the the <laughs> duel with lancelot like where he, he they're in the water there i think oh yeah freezing their, they're freezing their tushes off did yeah. you see it within the armor nipples was that yeah exactly the armor ping, nipples ping. were denting even further <laughs> 
All right. So we have in the name of God, St. Michael and St. George. So when did that start? And we know that, uh, you know, M was obviously going to get that commission. But what century did that begin? What, the Order of St. Michael and St. George? Yeah. Well, the, there is actually an Order of St. Michael and St. George, like a, a British or cavalry order, but it it wasn't established until the early 19th century. When so were like, St. Michael and St. George, I guess is my question, my broader oh, question. Uh, well, St. George is 4th century AD, uh, patron saint of England, obviously. And so would have happened, you know, sort of 200 or so years before the event. Uh, Got it. The events of this. And so that's like the, I mean, and St. Michael is our, our archangel Michael. So he like, you know, he's always, uh, he's al- he's always been there. Um, <laughs> always has been. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, he, he wasn't, he wasn't waiting to get, he wasn't waiting to get added. I think one of the interesting things about the Arthurian legend that I didn't know until I was reading stuff is that like the people that they're campaigning against and the Arthurian knights are the Saxon invaders. Cause this is like mm-hmm. pre, this is like pre the, you know, oh, yeah. Norman inv- Norman conquest, obviously. And so this is like real old Britain shit, like, you know, of, of opposing the Germanic tribe invasion. I read some articles um, not long ago, within a couple of months that where people are like, we've we've finally triangulated the location of um, Arthur. And it was up in like, uh, not Northumbria, Cumbria, with like hmm. the northwestern uh, corner of England yeah. below Scotland. And I don't know, there was a bunch of archaeological evidence or something that led some people to draw that conclusion. But when I think of it, I think of it like in the heartland. I think of, you know, uh, um, the Arthurian stuff being sort of very typically like Southern English, like um, mm. and and yeah, warring against the Anglo-Saxons. But that but this more, more recent scholarship seems to indicate that maybe he was like fighting against the Picts and the, the Norse mm. who had gone to Ireland and kicked Ireland's ass and then came right. back over to England to kick its ass right. too. And that he was one of the last sort of Britons to be defending against them. But there's also like a whole Welsh Arthurian tradition as well. And like, and, and so like there, there's like basically every part of Britain has like some slight yeah. claim to the Arthurian story, but yeah, it's old timey shit, man. All right. So then we have the introduction of Lancelot. Uh, so Arthur, you know, he's, he's now unified his, his sort of first group. And now they go and they get, they find Lancelot who is basically just holding up on a road and fighting anyone who will come because he's never met anyone that can defeat him. And we have this great battle between, uh, Arthur and Lancelot. Yeah. It goes on for a while. Arthur doesn't look good in this matchup. Like he looks like he should lose. (laughs) He's doing some Anakin shit. Like, yeah, he's, he's real mad. He's like all dark side of the force all the way. Well, yeah. I think that's the point, right? The The point is that he's kind of full of hubris and uh, yeah, and, and, and rage. He, yeah, exactly. And he, and he needs this guy who's a little more pure and a little more sort of um, representative of a of lawful good uh, to come yeah. in and, and show him his place and and level him up a bit. So he invokes the power of Excalibur to outmatch Lancelot and take him out. But in doing so, breaks Excalibur. Tough one. And. Yeah, real tough one. Although the Lady of the Lake is like, you know, she's offering, you know, curbside repair. Um, yeah, right. She's and right there are there. no consequences to bad decisions, which There's just no problem. isn't. Yeah, it doesn't feel right to me. <laughs> well, but he does immediately realize his folly, right? I think that I think it is the consequence. And it's the fact that he is willing to admit his mistake and say that his pride was blinding him. So I thought that was, in in my mind, that worked. But something nefarious went into Lancelot, I think, in that moment. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, him. like I think if you if you go back to you know O Fortuna, right? It's 
specifically talking about fate and and there are lines throughout the movie that you know refer to the fate and how arthur is like playing a part for for the future and when mm-hmm. he's done with that then maybe he and you know spoiler alert maybe he and guinevere can get back together and like go live old lives together right and so i think you know i think that there's there's something to it that um his faded story like it has to continue along the you know he has to the train has to keep going down the track so they have to give him excalibur back mm-hmm. and so like breaking it allows him to learn a lesson and and level up and then they give it back to him and he goes on to do the next stage but it's mm-hmm. all preordained it's all you know um and, mm. and he's going to get to where he needs to go mm. you're saying there's no free will uh that's right predestination <laughs> yeah I'm with you. So uh, with Lancelot on his side, they are able to win. And actually, they talk about throwing the invaders into the ocean and, you know, killing every one of them except for one so that they could tell the story. It was pretty convenient that they all showed back up at the same spot at exactly the same time to bring the news. Yeah, that was a rally point. Yeah, they were like, let's let's meet up. Um, So now you have Arthur, you know, basically he gives a speech. Merlin gives a speech. Um, it definitely is a throwback to St. Crispin's day in my mind. Mm. Um, but then you have, you cut from that to the marriage of Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot is dispatched to bring Guinevere and they fall in love in one second. Yeah. He, he imprints on her. (laughs) The smell. I love just the, again, this is another scene with the music, the Kyrie eleison or whatever, uh, Gregorian chant for the marriage by Trevor Jones, I thought was really phenomenal. And this is also where we get our first real scene of Helen Mirren and uh, as Morgana. Oh, yeah. yeah. Helen Mirren as Morgana. Yeah. Mm. I was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> She's got some fun outfits in this movie also. Fun fact. Uh, Helen Mirren and Nicole Williamson uh, had wor- who played Merlin had worked together previously on a production of Macbeth and hated each other uh, mm. like absolutely hated each other there was strong animosity so much though that when they were casting Excalibur they both requested to never work with the other one again and John Borman was like yes that's what I want for this relationship <laughs> is hatred and awkwardness they are fiery they're fiery golly that's amazing I did not know that yeah all right, so we go from there to Lancelot, um, you know, has been traveling and he's coming home and a petty thief, the lowly Percival, um, who is a nobody, tries to rob him and ends up requesting to become his squire. Mm-hmm. And so Lancelot brings him to Camelot, sends him to the kitchen to go get trained as a, as a lowly guy. But mm-hmm. he leaves as soon as he sees Guinevere, like his reaction is not good. And Morgana specifically notices the interaction between the two of them. And so Mm -hmm. she then puts up Gawain, played by Liam Neeson, and he accuses uh, Guinevere of driving away Lancelot. Right. He's our best and our bravest. Why then is he never here? Without Lancelot, this table is nothing. Is there anyone here who doesn't think of a god? And now to be driven from us by a woman's desire! And you don't want to get in this guy's way because he has a very particular set of skills. Yeah. <laughs> He's also real drunk throughout this whole thing. Yeah. Like, he just seems like real sauced. He is so young in this. Yeah. I think he went straight from this to uh, to crawl. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. So we have combat, uh, trial by combat two days hence. 
no one will defend Guinevere against Gawain. And I think Gawain seems he was, tough, man. Seems tough. Like people are like, like everyone there, all of the knights, like everyone in Camelot is just like, no, she's she's sketch. We can't. You think she's that's a deal? Floozy. Yeah. I don't know. It seems fucked up. I mean, so, Gawain doesn't look that. It can't be that people are afraid of drunk ass Gawain. Well, I was surprised after Gawain makes the the accusation, and Arthur's like, "We'll have the trial in two days hence, and Lancelot will come." Gawain has to be like, "Oh fuck, I have to fight Lancelot." Yeah, that's not yeah. good. Yeah, that's but he can't back me. down now. Yeah, yeah, no. got a reputation to uphold. So Percival steps up, and we have our second knighting of the movie. Arthur is like. Everything has to be by the book. The law is important. But if a squire wants to be a knight, like, who am I to say no? Um, mm-hmm. So instant knighthood. But then Lancelot shows up and they fight. Great battle. I mean, they didn't do a lot of due diligence on that promotion. It just kind of <laughs> just kind of threw it out. Doesn't feel fair or equitable to the other candidates. Who was the bar raiser in the interview yeah, process? Right. Yeah. So we have uh, Lancelot wins. Gawain is defeated and yields which I guess makes Guinevere innocent, technically. Um, but Lancelot, from a wound that he had received, I forgot about that. He had had a, uh, in dreaming before the fight, dreaming of fighting himself, kind of like Luke and Darth Vader. He ends up with a sword through his side. That shot yeah. was amazing. That was a good-looking shot. I'll say that. That was like a, that was like a kind of a Caravaggio-esque, like sort of sword through the guts look. It was good. I, I, good. I respect that. I must take my rest in the forest. Hasn't Merlin mended your wound? It is deep. You'll be sorely missed. Heal yourself. And come back. But once he's healed, Arthur asks Merlin to heal him no matter what the cost. Boom. He's out in the forest and Guinevere's there. Never ask a wizard to heal someone no matter what the cost. cost. That's That's a zero percentage move. Mm-hmm. That never works out. Yeah, I agree. Brian, any take on, on Guinevere? Like, couldn't she pull herself back? Uh, I mean, she could have, but that would not have been, like, that would have been melodramatic. It wouldn't have been mythic, right? There's the whole, the whole point is that there's a, a point to all of this. There's a story that's big and broad, and there's a, a point to hammer home, and why would she, right? Like, Arthur doesn't get to forgive her if she pulls back. And yeah. she doesn't get to hand him Excalibur, uh, you know, for at, at the last battle if she pulls back. So, well, I, like, I think the other thing, and I, I kind of glanced by this, but um, she she wants to know why Arthur can't defend her in this trial of combat before the mm-hmm. battle happened, and he says that he has to be the king before he can be her husband. Or well, if he's going to judge her, he can't also be her, you know, defense attorney. So he is a lawful good. Uh, yeah. you know, and he and he has to hold by that no matter what the cost, which I think is a mm. powerful message there. And that is, yeah. that's what drives her away. That stuff works for me. Yep. Yeah. The backdrop of all this is happening. So Guinevere and Lancelot are laying in the forest and Arthur is, is coming uh, to see them. You have Merlin is going to kill Morgana and he's going to, he takes her down into his underground lair. With, into his snake pit. Yeah, where, the, where his power is the highest. And he's about to blast her into oblivion when Arthur puts the sword between Guinevere and Lancelot and he, Merlin, is stabbed mystically or whatever. And so he is, Merlin is trapped instead. Well, no, 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 no. She turns the uh, the charm of making on him, right? Yeah. So she gets him. No, she, she gets, gets him to start saying it so that. Right. Uh, so then, then she learns it. Like she's stalking around him, repeating the words and stuff. And she's got like great total recall or whatever. So then she, she nails him with it. And 
So there's a there's an interesting take here, which is you know it's a parallel on Lord of the Rings, right? Where um, where Morgana's the Saruman character who represents like the the forces right. of modernity and you know industrialism and blah blah blah, and that's right. what causes poisons the land and you know causes um, causes all the all, all the the harsh stuff that's happening after this moment because Merlin mm-hmm. was the thing that she put away that she entrapped and and took over for and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a scouring of the Shire that has to happen at the end, of course, uh, in right. order for this to be satisfying. Mm. Mm. At this point, I just have a note that says, shit is all fucked up. Um, oh. yeah, Lancelot wakes up and he runs away when he sees Excalibur. Um, Arthur's in the chapel. He's struck by lightning. This is the scene right after he gets struck by lightning on the double or on the VHS tape that we had. There was an actual intermission for like seven oh. minutes or something. That, was that there was like awesome. an overture? Yeah. Yeah. Is oh, that the go get the popcorn moment? Basically, exactly. Hit the bathroom really quick, and then you come back to like the peasants on the uh, you know whatever in the field. Um, it all goes had, bad. It all goes bad at this point, right? So Merlin had said very early on that the land and Arthur are one, and that right. the land mm-hmm. would would you know basically would would blossom alongside him, and so you know he has lost his way from this, and the land is dying too. So we have the Grail quest. It's interesting. Earlier, you said Matt something like at the very beginning about um, Lancelot being the factor that caused this transition to happen, and that wasn't mm-hmm. how. I mean, you may be right, but that wasn't how I took it in either viewing. To me, it was more Morgana deposing Merlin, um, and then when I looked at the script, those things happen in sequence. They don't. They're not intercut. Mm-hmm. But in the in the movie, they're actually intercut. So it, it feels to me like. That was that must have been deliberate, and that you know maybe there's something to wait to to your read on it, Matt. That mm-hmm. they're meant to be like mutually reinforcing in some way, and um, and I missed that. To me, hmm. it was all about Merlin and Morgana, hmm. and that the Lancelot and Guinevere was just um, people uh, succumb to temptation. People aren't perfect. Arthur is the th- the person who's set apart from everybody else, and he's the one who has to deal with the consequences of people not being perfect. And I thought those two things were like separate, but, you know, adjacent, um, you know, but maybe there's something to the fact that they're both like two sides of the same coin. I like that yeah. better. I like that better. I like that more that it's the, uh, the Merlin story than the, the cause like the Guinevere thing is like kind of unsatisfying cause it like, it kind of gets into the same weird sexual politics of John Borman, which is just like. Because, like, after this, like, she gets, like, shoved off to the nunnery. Yeah. And, like, nothing else happens for her. Like, you know, it, it, it's it's just, like, none of the, none of the women characters, obviously, are, are particularly good in this in this movie. Um, or, like, have a lot of depth or anything, including his own daughter, who's, like, okay. sent, up, sent up as a dancing floozy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you make... I think you make a fair point on uh, the lack of, of female representation and empowerment in the film, other than Morgana. Yeah, she and she's the big evil. And she's the yeah. big evil, but she's pretty she's pretty tough. Uh, yeah. I love following Percival. For me, what works about this is the passage of time and just the bleakness of this era it really captures like how awful things can be. And you just have Percival constantly finding other knights dead along the road and you know, thinking he's gonna get some support and not. And then we have the scene where we have Kid Modred. Um, Kid Modred, yeah. Played by Charlie Borman. So this is the other child oh, scene. Oh, yeah. Gotta have his kids in this fucking thing. Mm-hmm. You seek what Arthur wants? That thing they call the Grail? I do. Then follow me. 
So as a kid, for me, seeing Modred in this golden armor, his laugh is like very upsetting um, and his whole sort of persona. But then all of the knights hanging in the tree and the birds great? pecking yeah, out their eyes great. and like eating their faces. Like that no. definitely had quite an, an impression on me as a kid. That was intense. Yeah, that's not what you want. That's not what you want. <laughs> yeah. This, this was the, like somebody ate mushrooms kind of moment, right? They, this, the whole mm. thing, the last, the last hour of the movie started to, to veer off into surrealism a little bit. And, mm. <laughs> and, uh, and just like this land of imagery and, you know, maybe you can't tell if it's actually happening or not or, or whatever. And it was de- a definite shift that you could feel. And this was sort of where, I don't know, right around the, right around the Lancelot Guinevere in the woods time was where I was starting to nod off in the first one. And, you yeah. know, full disclosure, I did not make it all the way through the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I read the script and like the script really pulled me back in and I watched it again uh, a few days ago and I... Uh, I, I did enjoy it a lot more after having read the script, uh, because I, I think I understood the intent and what was trying to, mm. try. and so I made it through this part and I actually watched this part intently and I like took the ride this time and it was, it was kind of fun. So, you know, maybe it takes some of us two two attempts to get there. I like how central the script was for your appreciation of the yeah. uh, of this movie yeah mm. i don't i don't want to have to read the script of every single movie in order to enjoy it but this one for whatever reason it worked and worked. i'm glad i did it mm. yeah it was a worthwhile use of time well talk about worthwhile use of time we have morgana giving modred an oil bath excellent yeah, transition that's a tough, Matt. That's a tough one. <laughs> so jason what's your what's your position like has griffin had any oil baths are you throwing glitter and like uh are spells being cast on your son at any time so far, I mean, I'm just trying to get him to not pee on the floor right now, so I haven't gotten to the spell casting, the spell casting part. But um, it seems hit or miss at the end of the day, right? I mean, like the spell, I mean, the spell didn't work, right? Like, well, he, she forgot that she forgot that Excalibur was not forged by men, so that's a problem. Uh, it was the Excalibur loophole, the Excalibur, okay. the Excalibur loophole, exactly. Um, so I do think the other thing that in this next scene, you have the grail quest sort of coming to its conclusion and you have Percival on the run and he hides while Urien's is ridden down by Modred and killed. And to me, it just really showed how far they had fallen and the loss of honor, the loss of power, the helplessness. To me, that was a really powerful thing. And at the end of all that, um, you know, that was the framework where he could finally, you know, be ready to have his moment. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so he I, I was gonna keep moving he so so he is attacked by peasants percival attacked yeah. by peasants who are all like crying and lamenting and i do want to say one of the women that is crying there's a close-up of her crying she's the peasant that i was talking about in zardas she is one of the travelers yeah. who was what the the extras that john borman was like these are the best people ever um, so all of these peasants are led by an older priest who is Lancelot. That's kind of a cool, um, Dune Messiah, uh, sort of situation, right? Like, yeah. uh, Paul is the prophet. I really love that, that scene, uh, and, and his performance in it, I thought was great. Um, but mm-hmm. he ends up getting knocked into the water and almost drowning. And this is where he has a second grail vision where he finds the grail. What is the secret of the grail who does it serve you my lord 
Am I? You are my lord and king. You're Arthur. I like how, you know, like, it, it's this big, you know, nine-year quest or whatever, but it, it just entails riding around and waiting for a vision. Uh, there's no, like, research, you know, or no investigation check or, like, going to other <laughs> lands no books, and in, going into dungeons or anything. It's just, like, eat some mushrooms and wait for a vision. And then the drawbridge comes down and you walk up it and there it is. End of story. Very easy. But he, he had to have the faith and the courage not to run away, right? Because he had had the vision of the Grail the first time when he was on the hangman's tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but he fled from it. And so here he didn't. He turned into it. This Percival section of the movie just doesn't do much for me. It's just like a little hallucinatory. And like, mm. it's not about any of the characters that the movie has been about heretofore. And like, it's also just a lot of the same. Like, it sucks to be Percival looking for the, the grail. Mm. I don't know. I was really ready for that part to be over. And it lasts for a long time. Yeah. On rewatches, it, it definitely goes a lot faster in, in my opinion. But, um, I can definitely see how that that felt long. <laughs> it goes faster. What do you mean it goes faster? It just feels faster. It feels it, it it does not feel like it's as drawn out. Okay. So he gets the grail. He he morphs from being in the vision to actually holding the grail in Camelot. He gives it to Arthur to drink from and we have a Theoden um type situation where Arthur comes back out. He tells Kay that he's going to ride out once more. I will ride out. Now, my brother, I shall be king. And Kay is like, knights, squires, prepare for battle. Guards, knights, squires, prepare for battle. And boom, we're right into Carmina Barana and the restoration of England, the cherry blossoms falling. Awesome. Were none of those knights out on the grill quest? Like they're always hanging out in their apartments. Yeah. No, they're not going out on that (laughs) bullshit. Not every (laughs) night can go, dude. I like, there's a couple of things about this I like. One is Morgana slash Modrid's army, like, has, like, real big, like, are we the baddies energy because, like, they're all. They're all wearing, like, fucking demon orc armor or whatever. They're like, Uruk-hai. Just, yeah, they're the Urukai. Like, they look fucking gnarly as shit. And, like, if you find yourself surrounded by those bros, you'd be like, wait a minute. What are we for? Whose side are we on? Second favorite thing of this is there's some quote where they're riding into battle and they said, then someone says, like, where are they? And then someone says, listen. Listen. And then... It, and then it's Carmina Barana. Yeah. It must be. <laughs> that could only mean one thing. <laughs> I need that to follow me everywhere. That's going to be my walk-up music in baseball. As we learn from uh, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker, every hero ha- you know, has yeah, their own uh, yeah. soundtrack. There, uh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Da, 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 da. So we are arriving. We're arriving at the final battle. So Arthur calls to Merlin from a circle of standing stones and Merlin awakes in the belly of the dragon um, and says that he's in his dream. You know, he's in everyone's dreams now, but he goes to Merlin appears to 
Morgana and tricks her into using the charm I'm making to summon the dragon's breath, which both raises a fog that obscures the battlefield, but then also causes her to age and like lose all of her charms of beauty that have kept her young for so long. Um, so I love when Modred sees that his mother is now old. He just murders her immediately. <laughs> Murder. Ageism. Got to kill mommy now. It's a Melisandre moment. He's the only woman like that's in the hole that he's ever known. He's yeah. just like, gotta, gotta kill her. She's yeah. she, she's ugly now. Yeah, there's there's some really weird mental issues. Uh, yeah, that, that did not go explored. <laughs> no, you know, I'm gonna. This it was is the actually last played time. by John Borman's mother, <laughs> <laughs> who lives down the road. John uh, Borman's <laughs> elderly mother. <laughs> so. This is the last time I'm gonna refer to the script because I know I'm overdoing it. But I like it. I like yeah. how deep you went into the script. Yeah. I respect it. So there's an, there's like a really cool wizard duel in the script that didn't what? make it into the final cut. Yeah, but it's not like people pointing their wands at each other or like you know throwing lightning bolts at each other. There, it's a war of words, right? So Merlin's mm. Merlin's like you are a snake about to strike, and and I'm the staff that drives the snake back, and then she's like. Burning with the fire of desire, I'm the flames that consume the staff to ashes. And he says, I'm the cloudburst that quenches the flames. So they go on like that for a while. And it's pretty wow. cool where they're like one-upping each other. And eventually, uh, you know, eventually she, she loses and, and, and what happens in the movie happens. But I, I wish I had seen that. I wish that, that they committed to that. They're like, we fucking hate each other. Can he just talk while I'm asleep? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'll be yeah. it. Apparently they got to be better. They got to be on, at least according to Helen Mirren, they got to be on better terms after the movie, like after, like during the filming of this movie, like this, like mm. sort of help, like, like the, the Macbeth production was cursed. Um, but this like helped them be on better terms. Oh, one other fun fact. Um, Mordred adult Mordred, not creepy boy. Mordred, mm. uh, was played by, um, British actor, Robert Addy, uh, who had a guest appearance in the British sci-fi show, Red Dwarf. that's all that's all that's all i got never watched it never saw it um so we have the final big combat in the you know in the fog helen mirren was describing that it was like the same 10 knights just attacking over and over again arthur and his forces because they they couldn't afford to have uh, right a a bunch of other folks but that that battle is great lancelot rolls in there and he just toasts everybody but he is wounded and on death's door awesome Forgive, Lancelot. My salvation is to die a knight of the round table. You are that, and much more. You are its greatest knight. You are what is best in men. It is the old wound, my king. It has never healed. That was like in my family. It's the old wound, my king. That that was like we would say that all the time. Anytime anybody wow. got injured, that was just like a classic. A wow. Classic line. Yeah. All right. So he dies. Modred says, come, father, let us embrace at last. I like that. I'm for that line. That one line I will support. Well, him impaling Arthur and Arthur pulling himself forward on the spear so that he can get close enough to then draw drive Excalibur into his right. chest. That was yeah. epic as fuck. And I loved it. Okay. All right. I'm going to weigh in. Uh, so as I told you before, I was asleep, uh, during this part, <laughs> so, the first time I watched, and then I went and read some shit about the movie. 
And they were like, this is Zack Snyder's favorite movie of all time. And he referenced this in, in Batman, whatever, the, the Justice League one. Like, no, uh-huh. Batman versus Superman, where at the uh-huh. end, like, Batman gets impaled on a spear by the, the monster and, like, mm-hmm. pulls himself up the spear to, to kill the monster. That mm-hmm. was a direct uh, reference to this scene. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, say what you will about Zack Snyder. Um, it's kind of cool that he referenced it in a, in, you know, in a mainstream um, uh, sure. superhero movie. So then when I watched mm. it, I had kind of, mm. that had sort of pumped me up for this. So I, wa- I watched it the second time. It all happened so fast. Really fast. It was not, it was not, there was no dramatic tension, you know, built or anything. Yeah. And I, I was underwhelmed. Um, so. And it also sort of makes the armor seem like it's made out of like tinfoil or something. Oh, dude, like the they, entire they, movie. People are yeah. sticking the points of long swords through yeah. plate mail armor. Through the plate mail armor, yeah. yeah. Complete bullshit. It's like, why would you wear armor? Why would you wear armor if you could exactly. just stick a sword? If that could happen. Right yeah. I, I don't know. Like, there were a couple ones where it's like it barely goes in, right? Like, it's it's usually not going all the way through someone. I took this as Modred having a powerful magical spear and Excalibur obviously being, uh, you know, like a plus five blade. So, yeah, that's cool. I just, um, in contravention of all other cinematic experiences I've ever had, I wish this one had gone on a little longer. I felt like it would have affected Yeah, I more. agree with that, too. The shot too. of the red sun in the background, like, it was That beautiful. was cool. I like that, too. It takes Percival two tries, but... And we'll skip the first try where he rides out and rides back again, but... That's unnecessary. <laughs> that, that could have been cut. That 100% should have been cut. So let's pretend that doesn't happen. And instead, you just have Arthur saying... My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. And Excalibur will rise. And he, Percival, goes off to throw it into the lake. And it is at this point that we have the swelling music of Siegfried's funeral from Wagner that goes through the credits and all the way out the rest of the way through the movie. To me, this was... Really amazing. I love the shot of the Lady of the Lake catching the sword, the sword disappearing. Arthur on the way out on the boat to the Grey Havens, uh, his his body there with the Valkyries taking him off. Epic. Agreed. I like the end of the movie. Yes. I couldn't stop thinking the lady of the lake looked so unnatural in her position under mm. the water. Like she was yeah. com- totally parallel to the surface of the water in this in a very awkward way. Mm. And and there was a lot of weird sword holding in this movie, I gotta say. Like back when Uther at the river, you know, when they were when he and Cornwall were like, you know, negotiating the truce, he was holding the sword up, not in an aggressive way, like he could hit you with it and you know, with strength and power. But like his palm, the, bat, the the butt of his palm was pushing the sword forward in this very kind of weak way. And I thought, that's not intimidating in any way. And mm-hmm. he had this like really goofy expression. And, and that was repeated throughout the movie. People held their swords in strange ways. And I didn't understand if that was deliberate or if the actors just didn't get the right training. They didn't go to boot camp. There was no boot camp. 
There was just they just they just went down to the local pub in like down the road in County Wicklow. Gabriel Byrne said specifically in that scene that you're talking about with Cornwall that the yeah. armor was digging so far into his throat that he could barely talk. So I think he was maybe distracted and not not able to hold his sword well. So. Come on, Gabriel Byrne, get it together. You're a professional. First yeah. movie. What can I tell you? <laughs> yeah. All right, final thoughts on Excalibur. This is not a good movie. <laughs> What's your star rating, Jason? How many stars out of five? One, one star. That's what? the best I can do. Like this is a not garbanzo? a garbanzo. You're giving it a one garbanzo bean. <laughs> yeah, like to give it any more is ridiculous. Like there's very little redeeming about this movie. I'm sorry, this- Corey. And the, the 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 base material is rich. Obviously, it's one of the foundational myths. Like it just goes on like a psychotropic odyssey. Uh, it's not incoherent, like Zardoz. Yeah, it's not incoherent like Zardoz. But like, unfortunately, unlike Zardoz, it doesn't it doesn't quite reach that level of bad where it becomes good. Uh, it's just sort of like not great. Like I, I of like. Of like other fantasy movies that I think are better, I would say Conan's a much better movie. I think that like Krull, I need to rewatch Krull, but my assumption is that Krull is a better <laughs> Krull movie. Krull is not going to hold up. <laughs> um, I, I promise you that. But Conan is a five banger. Like, like no, Conan, no questions asked. Labyrinth, like The Dark Crystal. There's a number of other like high fantasy movies that I think are on much stronger footing. Like this is just not one of them, despite having like a lot of interesting actors and like attempting some stuff thematically on the Christian pagan stuff and whatever else. Uh, it's just not actually good. Brian. Um, well, for the sake of posterity, I'm going to, I'm going to share with all the listeners that Matt offered me my choice of Conan and Excalibur <laughs> Conan being one of my top five of all time. And then he, he snatched Conan right back out of my grasp as soon as, as soon as I went for it, <laughs> He he said, "Nope, you get Excalibur instead." So that's um, not true. No, it's one hundred percent true, Matt. Uh, you, you choose to remember it differently, but that's how it worked. Oh, I got to check cool. the DMs. I think you. I think you said you wanted Excalibur. Uh, I said I would do it because I knew it was important to you. But Conan's yeah. my favorite. So that it's just this is just a public call out of Matt that when Conan does show up on the list, um, I better be extended the invite, even if it's a panel, even if there are multiple uh, okay. multiple guests. Okay. Now to your question. You know what, I would say the actual package experience for me with the multiple viewings and the script reading and the and like the, the reading the internet and stuff, two stars. Like, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the whole process of kind of going two through that. Two out of five? And I, yeah, two out of five. And I got more oh. out of it the second time, and it connected me back to my other experiences of the Arthurian legends. But as as a movie, it's not super compelling to me, and I probably will never watch it again. But I'm glad I did. All right, that's fair enough. Uh, so... so <laughs> So I'm going to say, for me, um, I will definitely cop to the fact that this is strongly influenced by my nostalgia factor for the film. I also do think this the notion that you have a film like this that tries to do something serious, even though it doesn't work 100% of the time, in the context of 1981, I think it's a standout film. The music works for me. I think the selection of the actors, even though they're not fully formed yet, the the legacy of what they're doing and just the power of the myth itself resonates for me in a powerful way. So for me, this is four stars. Okay. 
Cool, At man. least you say that it's like four stars and not five stars. I, I it's was not five. It's not. Year. It's not perfect. No, I'm not going to go with a five banger on this. I love this film, uh, but but it's definitely not perfect. That is for sure. So I I will go with four. All right. So Brian, who would Tilda Swinton play? I mean, I thought about this a little bit, and I, I hate to go with the obvious choice, but it also is the one that makes the most sense to me. And it's Merlin. I mean, it's it's obviously. Oh, that's Merlin. good. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like it could have been Morgana also, but why? Yeah, Merlin is kind of the the thing that holds the entire story together. It's about yeah, yeah. Arthur, but Merlin is what drives it all. And with the choices that that this uh, legendary Shakespearean actor made um, in this movie to play Merlin, I think that she like literally has an infinite universe of choices, and we know that she's good at pulling strange ones out. So I think that would have been cool. That's great. That is the correct answer. I'm going with that too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think that's our first ever um, unanimous decision. Yeah, no, I I think that's 100. Yeah. percent That's 100 percent right. I'm happy uh, to be here for that. Yeah. I do want I do want to call out our dear friends over at 70 millimeter are doing Tilda Swinton's Orlando. Uh, it'll be launching the same day uh, that that this is coming out. So definitely pop over and check that out. Fantastic movie and Tilda Swinton, the 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 film that broke her onto the scene and and was mm. fantastic. All right. Well, how about we get into some letters? Let's do some letters. First one is from Daniel McGibbon and subject line Interstellar. Daniel says, hey, Dune peeps, I saw Interstellar when it was released to theaters. And what stuck with me the most was Hans Zimmer's scoring. I enjoyed Nolan's Tenet, but it didn't have the same impact Interstellar did, and I think that's in large part because of the soundtrack. Ludwig Göransson is good, but I'm happy to see Dune has Zimmer on board, and it's on record that he, Zimmer, passed on Tenet so he could do Dune 2021. Awesome. Mm -hmm. It's got some hype to live up to, and according to Zimmer, he's wanted to work on this score since the 1980s. Either way, it can't be worse than handing the soundtrack over to Toto. Yeah. Dune 84. P.S. Even when it's remixed, it's still recognizably interstellar. Enjoy below if it fits your musical taste. And he has dropped in a remix uh, that we will play right now. Check it out. I'll include a link in the show notes to hear the whole thing. That reminds me, uh, Crystal was excited when Carmina Burana uh, showed up in the score for Excalibur because there's a, a great uh, Carmina Burana rave remix that she really likes. That I will find, wow. I will get from her and we can drop <laughs> in show notes as well. Daniel McGibbon, thank you so much uh, for writing us. I, I mean, I thought Ludwig Gorenson, his score on The Mandalorian is absolutely phenomenal. And I thought his work on Tenet was incredible. Did you see Tenet, Brian? I did see I saw it twice. What'd you think? I enjoyed it. I don't think I, I, don't think I had uh, quite the same high marks that you did for it because I thought it was, uh, there was a lot happening very, very fast and it was sort of incoherent and hard to follow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that was the intent. I think you guys talked at length about just sitting back and letting it happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to understand. I like to I like to be in there with what's going on. And so um, does the research, does the script reading. Uh, but I enjoyed it and I will come back to it for sure. Nice. I like it. Nice. All right. We have one voicemail. You'll never guess who it's from. Corey. It's Corey. Doom pod. We made it. 
we're finally here. John Borman's masterpiece, Excalibur. <laughs> anyway, this was like a total cable favorite of mine when I was growing up. It was on. I was playing it in front of the TV. I had to watch it. No matter where it was at, every scene was just captivating to me as a kid. Um, I wrote on my letterbox review that, you know, I really do love everything about this film. Like the score, the cast, the costumes, like the armor and everything. I mean, we all know Merlin is is like the real star of this whole thing, but um, Percival is my jam. Mm. Like I was raised Roman Catholic, so um, the whole quest for the Grail. Like once Arthur is sick because of his bond with the world, the dragon, and all that, and he's really sends the knights out. Like that's when the the movie really like sings for me. So many great scenes happen. Mm. Um, I mean, just to see Percival get all gross on his quest with those lips are all chapped and his armor is filthy and then the Mordred stuff and the hanging from the trees and the birds pecking the eyes wow. of, of wow. The, the failed knights and yes. it's like, Corey, so great. Anyway, yes. I don't want to go too excited. long, but uh, I really hope Jason came around on this one, you know, if he <laughs> didn't, that's cool. That's cool. We're all here to have our own opinions and you know, that's, that's fine. Matt, I know you love this film, so we'll we'll be forever bonded over Excalibur for sure. All right, guys, thanks for everything. I'm really excited to listen to this episode. I might even have to call back after this episode to comment on what you guys need to be commented about. But we'll see. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. Bye. Regretful because I don't want to be I don't want to be roasted by Corey next week. So just for Corey, if we're going to send Corey an edit of this podcast in which I think it's a five-star movie. Right. Um, and he can, and he'll I have like a proprietary it was link. A five banger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> J- Jason, I was, um, I was sub three with you. So know, maybe Corey will focus all of his hatred on me and, uh, and spare you. Yeah, maybe that'd be great. That'd be great. I'd love for you to be the focus of that. Um, <laughs> Drawing. I don't, I don't want Corey. I don't want to live in a universe where Corey's mad at me. What's it called? Drawing. Uh, what is it? Drawing heat. Drawing or fire. Drawing aggro. Pull yeah, aggro. drawing you, aggro. Yeah, pull aggro. You'll tank for me. Yeah, that's right. That's my job. Corey, we love you. I'm with you. Uh, these jokers. I love the fact that the part that Corey loves the most is the part that you guys were like, "We're checking out for this part." And Corey's like, "Yes, now we're finally starting." <laughs> it's great. It shows. It shows the depth of this masterpiece that it, how it can speak to so many people in so many right. different ways. Different strokes. Um, all right, Brian, what do you have to plug? Well, if people want to find uh, tabletop role-playing games, they can always go to warhorn.net and look around for some. Uh, mm. I've got a few listed there for your for your gaming pleasure. What are people playing these days? Like, what's what's the hotness at the moment? You know, the last few, I would say the last five to seven years, the Paizo games, uh, Pathfinder, Starfinder, have been ascendant. Mm. Uh, but their share is dropping a little bit. Uh, D&D Adventures League is uh, is creeping up. Mm. Uh, so where it was, it was like a 90-10 split a few years ago. It's now more like a 70-30. Mm. Uh, so I don't know what's going on over in D&D land. I think there's a lot of podcasts and TV and all kinds of social media stuff that's yeah. driving uh, it more be, popular. Yeah, I was going to ask about what you thought the like critical role effect was on tabletop. Um, oh, man. I could talk for hours on that. I think that uh, it's a really cool idea to provide a way for the people who are playing games around their kitchen tables uh, all over the world to be able to get on TV and there that some of those people are going to be stars and none of us know it. Right. So you got a critical role where everybody's a professional voice actor and they've been able to put to, to get kind of a a professional budget and great production design. So of course everyone's going to like it. 
You got um, whatever the um, the Will Wheaton one was that we Matt mm-hmm. and I watched on stage. Uh, Acquisitions Incorporated. Acquisitions Incorporated. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right With where you've got like the stars. Packs. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. everybody wants to see those. But I think that there's a long tail of amusing uh, gamers out there. I learned recently there's actually a term for this. Uh, is it like real play or something? Um, I feel stupid because I don't actually have this term at my command. But live streaming of D&D games uh, and people who aren't pros um, are, are still building followings. Mm-hmm. And that's a really cool time, I think, for us to be in uh, so that somebody sitting at their kitchen table in Nebraska can build an audience around their role playing game. Because you know what? It's fun and it rewards um, it rewards participation, just like your pod rewards participation uh, mm-hmm. over repeated you know, listens. I, I listen to you guys when I'm running um, and it's super fun. And I've kind of built a relationship with you guys through that over time. And I think that the same opportunity is there uh, for, you know, all kinds of sort of like um, uh, entertainment outlets. Um, and so role playing games are, are no different. And Matt and I and our friends who played D&D together for 20 years, some of our favorite kind of friend group stories are things that happened in D and D sessions, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and you can kind of buy into that and, and, and play along with it while you're watching that on screen with people. Most of them are going to be not that fun. And some of them are going to be unwitting stars. And I, I can't wait to see that happen more. I want to give a shout out to, so Tim O'Thief, uh, who was on for our tenant episode has been telling us he's been watching GTA role play which is where you have servers that are long living and streamers are in character as GTA characters. And they literally like, oftentimes it'll be like this, their mob uh, group runs a pizza joint. And so Mm -hmm. they will literally come in and work shifts eight to 12 hours a day at the pizza joint. And then occasionally they'll get to go do a mission um, but the rest of the time, it's just like them hanging out, talking, bullshitting while they're working their jobs. And one streamer finally had to quit. He's like 100,000 followers or whatever. Many of the numbers wrong, but like this massively popular streamer who's like, I don't want to work this job anymore. I couldn't stand being at the pizza joint <laughs> anymore. Mm-hmm. So shit's getting weird. Yeah. All right. We did it, you guys. We did it. We covered Excalibur. Thank God. Yes, we got that out of our system. Jason, how does it feel for this to be in your rearview mirror? I'm very grateful because we have a lot of (laughs) we have a lot of exciting content coming up. Like Blue Velvet's great. Uh, What's the week after that, Matt? Uh, Edge of Tomorrow with Lorelai. Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, that's going to be Todd Siri. Love that movie. We need you to come back for uh, something more deserving of your talents. All right. Actually, Brian has placed a stay to come in as a panelist because we had already promised Catcher that we would bring him on for Cloud Atlas. Um, Ooh, yeah. And Brian and I saw Cloud Atlas in the theater, um, yep. and, and I know he wants to get in on that. So, so okay, we, this is not the last of Brian on. Okay, Tupac, good. I'm glad sure. glad to hear it. I'm also glad to hear it. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Dune Pod. I want to thank Jason and Brian for a wild conversation. Next week, we go back to the current reigning master of Dune, at least for another few months, David Lynch, and his surreal follow-up to Dune, starring Paul Moadib himself, Kyle MacLachlan, in 1986's masterpiece, Blue Velvet. If you're enjoying this podcast, follow us at DunePod on Instagram and Twitter and share our social media posts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. DunePod is a production of H Industries, our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. The episode was edited by Maria Passingham from Edit Audio and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening, 
We'll see everybody next week.